uh, I was in tears. Um, you know, so much was being taken away from me in my personal life. And, and all I could think of was this is something they can't take away from me. This is going to be mine. This will always be mine. And it was just an incredibly emotional moment. Episode 399, High Altitude Mountaineering and the Seven Summits with David Morrow. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. This episode is brought to you by Kind. Kind makes delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. I know you've heard me say it in the past, but the press bars by Kind are absolutely the best. In fact, my new favorite is now the dark chocolate and banana kind press bar. I had this on a motorcycle trip while we were away on our summer break, and it is awesome. Make sure you take a few minutes to go over to kindsnacks.com sports so you can sign up for 20 kind bars for $20 with a new snack pack. That's 50% off, and you receive free shipping on your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through the Snack Club. Go to kindsnacks.com sports. That's kindsnacks.com sports. Hey guys, we are back from our summer break. I know we had a good time while we were away, and I hope you did too. The relaxation was much needed. I wanted to give a shout out to our latest patron. It is Nicholas. Nicholas is now eligible to win some of our giveaway prizes, as well as take advantage of the patron-only episodes for Life Outside the Box. We recently gave away a bark bath as one of our demo product giveaways, and Joseph Kevin was the winner. Joseph, we haven't heard from you yet, so if you're listening, check your email. There's a message in there letting you know that you've won. I hope you'll consider supporting ASP by becoming a patron. It's only $5 a month. Go over to patreon.com slash Podcast to check that out and be a part of our tribe. Today's episode is with David Morrow, and he'll be talking about high-altitude mountaineering and the Seven Summits. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hey friends, Kurt here. Today I have David Morrow with us, and David has climbed the Seven Summits. He has written a book about climbing the Seven Summits. He is an actor. He does live improv, living in Bellingham, Washington. I've already been visiting with him, and we've been having a ton of fun, so this is going to be a fantastic show. David, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Curtis. It's uh, it's great to be here. I, I I love the show. You know, when we got uh, the show booked, uh, I went ahead and subscribed to the podcast and started listening to past episodes. and And it's a great show. You folks do a terrific job. Well, thank you, thank you. There's a lot of back episodes to listen to. I don't know how many yeah. people have gone to look, but we're at about 400 episodes now. So there's so much back there in, in that back back catalog, which, of course, people can get to on our website if they can't find it anywhere else. So adventuresportspodcast.com. But David, wow, um, you told me before we started that this book is not just about mountain climbing. No, sir. It is a book about growth and healing and discovery. It sounds like you pulled a lot of humanness into uh, this part of your life in this book. Give us a little bit of the backstory, if you would. Yeah, so I mean, the the, the story starts uh, at a very low place uh, and ends at a very high place uh, to to paint a broad brush. But the low place was uh, I was uh, 44 years old, and um, my marriage of 17 years was over. Um, I was living in my sister's guest room and still grieving the death of my brother. Um, and, uh, I was completely out of the ideas as far as what to do with myself and my life moving forward. And then a package arrived that changed everything about the trajectory of my life. A package. <laughs> That's right. A package. It was a birthday gift. So, um, uh, the package was from, uh, my sister and her husband up in Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, his name is Ty Hart, uh, my sister's Noel. And uh, uh, Ty was a well-accomplished mountaineer. And uh, many months earlier, he had tried to talk me into joining an expedition to go up Mount McKinley, now officially named Denali. Um, and, uh, and when he issued the invitation, I said, look, uh, I'm not a mountain climber, so this doesn't sound like a particularly good fit. <laughs> That's a serious mountain. And, uh, you know, but we're not getting along right now, my wife and I, and she wouldn't support it. So thanks, but no thanks. And he just said, you know, well, think about it. And, uh, and, uh, it's a year away. And so I did think about it and it was about five months after that, that, that the marriage, uh, was over. And um, and uh, on my birthday, uh, he sent me that package. And when I opened it up, it had a set of climbing poles and a note that said, 
happy birthday, super climber. Uh, in, in other words, your wife holding you back isn't exactly a problem anymore. So how about it? <laughs> and, you know, uh, the thing is this is, I did not believe that there was any reasonable basis for thinking I could make it to the top of Denali. I mean, it's a 20,000-foot mountain. Uh, but I also realized that I was in such a low place that failing couldn't bother me much, frankly. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a funny thing, Curtis, because uh, a guy who thinks he literally has nothing left to lose is, is a pretty dangerous guy. I mean, probably good ways and bad ways, but in this case, good ways, uh, because I wasn't afraid of failing. Not the least bit. And I decided I would do it in that moment. And um, uh, I had eight months to train, and train I did. I hired a personal trainer. I took it very seriously. I read everything I could. I did everything I could to be prepared. And uh, I was in the best shape of my life when I left on that expedition. But I had no skills. I didn't know what I was doing. So most of the fitness I had was squandered pretty easily. And had it not been for the incredible team around me, there's no way I would have made it to the top of that mountain. But I did. Mm. Well, we should unpack that a little bit. Because a lot of people would like to try mountaineering, but they have no skills. And they haven't trained for it. And so you just went through the process um, you ended up climbing all seven summits, which we'll come back to that part of the story. When you headed to mm -hmm. Denali, were you thinking only Denali at the time? Right. Yeah. At, at no point did I say to myself, I'm going to climb the seven summits. Um, it didn't happen that way for me. Each each mountain, I felt, called me in its own way. And I was ready to be done mountain climbing at any point. Um, and, and at one point in the book, I actually give it up. I'm done. And I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm at peace with that decision. And then something happens. It pulls me back in. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, um, I, I thought, look, this is going to be an experience. And, and it's a way to run away from my problems. And I had plenty of them at that point. And, um, and I also had this idea in my head, you know, I mean, the, uh, the, the Really, the only good thing in my life at that point that I could point to was Ty's belief in me, and uh, because I didn't believe in myself anymore, frankly. And um, the idea hatched in my head that if I could make it to the top somehow, which I thought was unlikely, but if I could, I would come to believe in myself again. Mm. And that's probably the worst rationale possible for <laughs> to Denali. And, and to your listeners, I say, do not do that. Um, but that's where I was at. Uh, and it was with those notions in my head that I, I left for Talkeetna in, in May of uh, 2007. Wow. Well, I kind of have to agree with you. It, you shouldn't necessarily climb a mountain to prove something. But at the same time, I don't know of any mountain I've climbed that didn't prove something. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, th the funny thing is, is in, in, in man's world, right, the the day-to-day -day world, um, the reason why you're doing something is is always there before you start it. But I think in nature and in personal growth, the why answers the last part of the experience. And, and a person's got to be willing to kind of trust the message life is sending them that it will ring true in the end because it almost always does but that's not intuitive for most of us we want to know why we're going to denali before we're doing it and what we're going to get out of it and so on and so forth and that isn't the way it works no i i would have to agree with that it's it's in reflection of the experience itself yeah exactly the lessons that we may have thought we were going to learn we don't always learn but, man, we learn things along the way we never anticipated. Do you have an example of that on Denali? Something that oh, was a surprise. Absolutely. You go, holy cow, I didn't expect that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, the main one that comes to mind is that uh, we started off as a team of nine, and we eventually were whittled down to five. Um, and, and before we left on the expedition, we were interviewed by local TV uh, individually. And so uh, no one saw the way each, the other guy answered the questions uh, until we got back. And when we looked at the tapes, there was one question in particular they asked everybody, and that was, what's it going to take for you to get to the top in North America? And the four people that didn't make it all answered that question the same exact way. And the five people that did make it all answered it essentially the same different way. 
Um, so here it is. The people that didn't make it all said, you got to, you got to look at the summit. You got to keep your eyes on the prize. You know, you got to stay focused on your objective, that sort of thing. Those people didn't make it. Mm. The people who made it were the ones who said, you know, you just got to, uh, have fun hanging out with the guys, making camp, breaking camp, taking in the views, having a hot cup of cocoa. <laughs> in other words, uh, make each day its own mountain climb um, and find joy in that day, which is so, so, so important. And so, you know, the strange irony about at least big mountains, and I've seen this again and again and again in my climbing, is that the guys who think about the summit almost never get there. It's just too hard. If you're only there for the summit, you're going to get crushed beneath your dream. It's just too hard. There's got to be something more to it. And there's got to be something each and every day, and that's joy. And so you need to live as though daily joy is your first responsibility. And it's a funny thing how you experience life when it shifts to that uh, focus. You know, that's an insight that I don't think a lot of people have come to. But, man, that's one that applies to all of life. That's not just about getting up a mountain. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I like to say everybody's got their own Mount Everest, right? I mean, mine just happened to be Mount Everest. But, but you know, somebody listening to this is fighting cancer right now. That's their Mount Everest. Somebody else is trying to open that business they've dreamed about opening for, you know, all their work in life. That's their Mount Everest. Everybody's got their own Mount Everest. And, 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 and the thing about those big, tough things that aren't just a sprint to the finish, this is it's going to take days, weeks, months is you know what you're in it for, right? You, you know the summit is part of the deal, but, but that's got to be like a radio set to a low volume in the next room. If, if you just keep focused on that, you'll burn yourself out. And so, you know, you got you, you, you to take that big mountain and break it down to smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. And you might say, yeah, I can't get to the summit of Everest. No, I can't get to camp one. No, I can't get to base camp. But, but I can get to the village below base camp. That, yes, that I can do. And that is all you let yourself think about. Not one thing past that. There'll be plenty of time to worry about what's after that when you finish it. Um, and, and, it's, and it's that sort of uh, simple baby steps approach to big, big things that, that makes all big mountains really just a lot of little mountains. Mm. You know, Chris Warner, when we interviewed him about his uh, climbing of K2, he said something that's kind of parallel. And I'm going to throw it out there just for comparison's sake. But he said that his team decided it really wasn't about getting to the summit. It, it had to be about how they climbed the mountain, the attitude mm-hmm. that they had and the camaraderie and, and the way that they attempted this feat was more important than the summit. And that's, uh, that's what got them to the top of K2. And I, I see a lot of parallels there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, because the thing is, is every time you think of the summit – it gives you kind of this little surge, right? A little adrenaline surge. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, that that would be so great. But the thing about it is, is, is it's also kind of like taking an advance on a paycheck you haven't finished earning. And each time you think of it, you got to think of it a little bit longer to get that same high, right? Mm, right. Until, until the point comes when there's, there's not enough money left in the check to justify the work it's going to take to earn the damn thing. And you're done. At that point, you're just, you're just playing done. You're going to have a bad day. All climbers do. And the thought of the sun will come into your head and you'll be crushed beneath the weight of it. Wow. So um, when when I climb big mountains, I won't even look at the summit. The whole trek into Everest, people would stop to take photos. I just kept my head down, kept trekking. I don't want that image in my head. Because if I have a bad day and I see that image and I'm thinking, oh, it's another 10,000 feet above me. It'll just kill it right there. Um, I gotta, I got, I gotta keep them small. Keep all those ideas small. Man, there's so much that we could talk about today, but I want to, I just want to unpack that just a little bit too. You mentioned that you made the seven summits in seven attempts, and that's unheard of. Yeah, and it makes me think maybe it has something to do with what you're saying right now. That it was about the experience each moment, not about getting to the top. Well, I would I would make the case that that was a big part of it. Sure. Um, yeah. So as, as, as you mentioned, most of these big mountains, these continental high points take three, four attempts to get to the top, assuming a person ever does. So to, to get up to 
the top of one on a first try is, is, is pretty unheard of, but to go seven for seven is, is, is really, really unheard of. And I'm not saying no one else has ever done it. I think it's possible. I've just never heard of it. So I was extremely fortunate and I do not discount the part that luck plays in it. Um, I also worked extremely hard, uh, and, uh, I was with great climbers, really good people who are owed a great deal of credit along the way. Uh, but, but I also was keenly aware of the mental game because I know most of the people that show up to, you know, an Aconcagua or one of these big mountains, physically they're capable unless they're just delusional. I mean, you're going to be in great shape when you show up. The mental games where people lose this stuff and, um, and, and managing it, managing your self-talk, your, your visualization, your relationships with your team members, um, how far you let your mind get out ahead of you. That's all so, so important. Well, it really is. I remember as my kids were just old enough to start doing some climbing and backpacking, and uh, I kept telling them, I'd point at my head and i say, you climb this with your head. It's not with your feet, mm-hmm. it's not with your legs. You know, you're cli- you climb this with your head. And, and I would try to, to say, okay, I want you to say, I am strong. I want you to pat yourself on the back and say, look what I'm doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And those mm-hmm. sorts of, of thoughts give you the energy to keep going. But if you start thinking, I am so tired, <laughs> then you're pretty much done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure enough, you will feel tired if you keep telling yourself you're tired. <laughs> I think you'll feel That's tired regardless, right? Right, right. You know, but I mean, there were there were times when I was down to okay, just a hundred more steps, just a hundred more steps, and then I was down to ten more steps. That's all you got to worry about right now, just ten more steps, um, and. Um, and if that's what it takes, you know, uh, just smaller and smaller, whatever size increment you can say yes to, bring it down to that and then worry about what's after that, but not before. Mm, <laughs> man, another great takeaway for life. <laughs> you know, choose bites that you can swallow and then figure out the next bite when you're done, you know? And that's the hard part because we, we want to get out ahead of it. We want to say, yeah, I can do the 10 steps, but but look at this head wall in front of me. What then? No, 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 no. You're breaking the rules. You can't do that. You just worry about your 10 steps and then we'll, we'll worry about the head wall after that. There'll be plenty of time to be consumed with fear and regret. That's okay. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Well, let's jump back to Denali here. Um, you, you decided you're actually going to go for it. You trained really hard. And uh, you had a group of, you said nine, is that right, people? We, yeah, we started as nine, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, four didn't make it and five did. And you think it has a lot mm-hmm. to do with the reason that they were attempting to climb in the first place, perhaps. Oh, yeah, I think it had a whole lot to do with it, yeah. Okay, so just unpack Denali without huge details. What was it like to get up that mountain? A lot of people say it may be a more dangerous mountain than Everest. Well, I don't know if it's more dangerous, but it was much harder to climb. Mm. Well, maybe not much harder, but it was it was hard. It was it was the hardest of the seven for me. Um, and uh, and it, it has a lot to do with the fact that uh, there there are no porters or sherpas. You're hauling all your own junk, right? You're pulling a sled with ninety pounds of gear while you're carrying a pack with sixty five. Um, and, uh, I weighed one ninety at the time. So it's that, that's a pretty good ratio of, of <laughs> weight, weight to weight. And you're going uphill while you're doing all that. And, uh, it can be very cold in the warm part of the year when climbers hit it, which is May, June, you'll see 30 below at high camp. Wow. Uh, it's, it's almost in the Arctic circle and, uh, it's close enough to the Bering Sea to get some of those huge storms that come in off the sea and just hammer it. At one point we were taking shifts, uh, two hour shifts, digging the tents out because the snow was falling so hard. And we did that round the clock for three days. There was literally never an end to shoveling. There was always someone out shoveling or we would have just been buried. But, wow. um, so it's, it's a tough mountain and, uh, and deserves every ounce of respect. And um, again, so much credit goes to my team members. Well, it sounds like it would take a team, you know, especially when you have one of those scenarios where you have to shovel around the clock. Man, I mean, you can't do that alone, right? Yeah, as a two-man team, forget about it. You just you just can't. It's it's too exhausting. So, um, yeah, having a having a team and having a good team 
who also have their mental game together and um, and hopefully have uh, real solid skills to, to make up for your lack of them, uh, in my case, um, that's, uh, that's all pretty important. Have you guys ever tried a Kind Bar? You may have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. Kind makes delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. If you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, we've got a special deal for you. You can try 20 Kind Snacks for $20 with their new snack pack. That's 50% off your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through the Snack Club. That's Kind's monthly snack subscription service. The Snack Pack has the perfect mix of Kind favorites with 20 snacks from seven of their unique product lines, including oats and honey with toasted coconut granola clusters, Kind dark chocolate nuts and sea salt bar, and Kind's crunchy peanut butter protein bar. As you've heard me say, make sure you're also trying out the Kind press bars. They're amazing. All Kind snacks are crafted with delicious, wholesome ingredients like nuts, fruits, and whole grain bars to keep your body and your taste buds happy. When you sign up, you'll get 20 snacks for $20, including free shipping, and you also get to try Kind Snack Club, where you'll receive monthly snacks at a discount and get a members-only bonus. Do yourself a favor and go to kindsnacks.com sports to learn more and to get in on this deal for our listeners. That's kindsnacks.com sports. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. So just out of curiosity, did you do acclimation climbs where you would go high and come back and sleep low and do that sort of thing on Denali? Or were you able to acclimate as you inched your way up the mountain? Oh, no. We absolutely carried high, slept low. Yeah. Okay. And that seems like that's key for all of these expedition-style climbs. It is, yeah. Well, I mean, you're giving your body a fair chance to acclimate to altitude. And, you know, it's tough enough as it is. So be fair about this thing. Give your body a chance, you know. Ascend at a reasonable rate. Carry high. Sleep low. Um, you know, uh, I never took Diamox until I was on Everest. Um, I, I, I just found that I, I was fortunate genetically in terms of my ability to acclimate to thin air. And we were always very careful and measured about how we ascended. So that, that worked out. Well, Denali is just such a beast of a mountain. It's so huge. I, I was blessed enough to get to see it once, but I've never been on it. And every time I hear someone tell the story, it just it's amazing to me. What, a, what an amazing peak that is. And then there's still other summits that are, you know, higher and maybe even badder. <laughs> and so yeah. Um, yeah. when you summited Denali... <laughs> What did that feel like? Oh, uh, I was in tears. Um, you know, so much was being taken away from me in my personal life. And, and all I could think of was this is something they can't take away from me. This is going to be mine. This will always be mine. And it was just an incredibly emotional moment. And uh, anybody who goes to my website, davidjmorrow.com, there's actually film of that moment <laughs> where my brother-in-law turned his camera on, put it in my face and said, uh, well, how does it feel? And uh, what you see is, is an image of a guy with with not enough oxygen to cobble together a full sentence, but I, I eventually, <laughs> I eventually get something out to the effect of, you know, I probably look as bad as I've ever looked and I probably feel as good as I've ever felt. Wow. Something like that. <laughs> well, that's so fantastic. All of that said, we came down, went home. I was on a high for a while. Uh, and then this sinking feeling started coming back to me, the, the, the same one I'd had in my sister's guest room when I was living with her, and that was somehow I still didn't believe in myself. And, and that, for me, was one of the big takeaways from Denali is, is understanding you, you don't come to believe in yourself by climbing mountains, right? You, you, you believe in yourself when you deal with your problems, and, and, and I understood that now. And I understood my problems and I was ready to deal with them. And so, you know, the book takes it from there, uh, talking about what those are and, and how the mountains taught me to deal with them. 
You know, you've mentioned the book a couple of times. I think it'd be fantastic if we could hear a little excerpt from it that you'd like to share just to give us a flavor of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So hang on a second here. Something from uh, something from Denali. Let me just, uh, I've got a little excerpt I like to read. Uh, so uh, this, uh, this is an excerpt that takes place um, right uh, as we reach high camp. And uh, we're trying to decide if we're going to skip the rest day and move on. And um, I'm clearly the weak link in the chain, and so it all kind of depends on me. Um, so we retreated to our tents early that evening as the sun dipped, then disappeared around the west flank of Denali. The temperature quickly dropped to minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So our team meeting, shouted back and forth through thin tent walls, was conducted with each member burrowed deep inside his down sleeping bag. So here's the thing, Harris began. The weather forecast still says tomorrow's a good day, but there hasn't been any update for the day after. It could be good or it could be the start of bad stuff. How are you feeling, D? That was the nickname they gave me. Whooped, I shouted back. Yeah, I know it was a rough day, but you did good. Do you think there's any chance you'd be up for a summit push tomorrow? The thought of resting the entire next day had been a big part of what kept me going. Don't we need to go fetch our cash tomorrow, I asked, hoping to deflect attention from myself. Not for a summit push, Harris answered. Most of that cash is extra food, batteries, and fuel. We can always get it the next day. If we summit, then weather holds us here. I thought about it for a moment. I don't know, I said. From here up, we don't pack any weight, Harris offered. Just your lunch and heavy down gear. No one else spoke. It was just Harris shouting to me from the tent he shared with Sam and Mark, with me shouting back from the tent I shared with Ty. I guess I'll have to see how I feel in the morning, I answered. Okay, sounds good, D. We'll check back then, Harris ended. We were silent for several moments while each team member mulled the possibilities. Then I rolled over to face Ty and asked, do you think I can do it? Ty could have said yes, and I would have believed him. He could have said no, and I likewise would have accepted his judgment. But Ty said neither. I now see that as a gift. Any summit push entails great effort and great risk. A climber may own success, or he may own failure, but the least he is owed is full ownership. I like it. And so the <laughs> next day, did you do the summit? We did. We woke the next morning, and uh, I felt rested. I felt ready, and uh, when they asked me, uh, I said, yeah, let's go for it. And there was a lot of whooping and hollering, and uh, we got up, and, and we did it. Right on, right on. So <laughs> in my experience, when you do a, a big feat, when you're climbing a mountain, for instance, maybe it's running a marathon or whatever it may be, but when you accomplish a big feat, that doesn't fix everyday life. And you've alluded to that already. Yeah. But what happens, I think, is that you learn skills that help you to cope with everyday life. So did you take some lessons learned from Denali that, that started to help? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the lesson about, um, you know, breaking things down to um, breaking a mountain down to smaller and smaller and smaller pieces you know, the, the things I was dealing with in my personal life were mountains. Uh, and uh, any time I thought about dealing with them, they were just too big. But now I knew how to take them and break them and, uh, and turn them into little pieces that I could say yes to. Mm. Let me throw some one-liners at you. I'd like your perspective. Mm -hmm. What if someone came up to you and says, I want to be the man that's climbed that mountain? What would your response be? Yeah, I would ask him, why? You know, why? Why do you want to be the guy that climbs that mountain? Why that mountain? Why you? Why now? Why? You know, tell me about your, your motivations, what, what, what it would mean to you if you succeeded, how you, know, you think you'd handle it if you didn't succeed. I'd, I'd want to have a conversation. Mm. So how does that look? If, if such a, a guy says, I want to be the man who climbed that mountain, and then you ask him, I mean, we're kind of getting hypothetical here, but you ask them, okay, what happens if you don't make it to the top? Then who are you? You think that's pertinent to this discussion? Is that what we're kind of talking about? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, you know, because I, I, think, I think people have funny ideas about mountains. I think that, that they, they can make the same mistake they make with their careers, you know, which is defining themselves by what they do. 
um, when you stop doing it, who are you, right? Um, so um, if you define yourself by by the success you have on a mountain, who are you if you don't enjoy that success? So, you know, you want to you, you, you wanna get around the other side of that discussion and see what mechanics are, are driving it. Maybe there's a person that should climb that mountain. Maybe, maybe um, it, it, there's there's so much for them to learn in the experience. Either way, that that they should they really should pursue that experience, and it becomes a, a discussion then of, you know, uh, you know what what skills, what conditioning do you have? You know, uh, here are some things you can do to improve on those. You don't want to suffer your way to the top of any mountain, and and the more prepared you are, the more enjoyment you're capable of having and doing it and my god this should be an enjoyable experience um even though it is incredibly hard Mm. i kind of can predict the answer to this next question but you are the man that has climbed those seven mountains the seven summits on the seven continents and and it's an amazing feat for anyone to accomplish it's it's just amazing so you are the man that has climbed that mountain how do you identify with that now what would you tell people about that I, uh, well, for starters, I am not a linear person any longer, and I most certainly was before that. So um, I work now as I've worked for the last 30 years um, as um, an investment advisor and certified financial planner. That's how I make a living. And that's, if you think about it, that's sort of the definition of linear. You know, you, you want to retire at this age. I had always um, heard uh, motivational speakers in the industry sort of um, uh, promote this gospel of linear thinking, you know, make a goal and never take your eye off it and damned anything it gets between you and it. And and it, and it wasn't until I got involved in, in this, this adventure um, that I learned that advice is exactly wrong. And, uh, <laughs> and so now I'm much more willing to to you know, clear my mind and and listen to life's instructions and trust them and act upon them without requiring that it makes sense now or I have all the answers now. And that is a big, big shift that came about through the course of this seven-year period in my life. Yeah, it's worth thinking about that a little bit, isn't it? I think that's kind of fascinating that you realize that it's not linear anymore. So how does that play out in everyday life, applicable ways that that people could apply to their own experiences? Yeah, you know, what what, what I would encourage people to do is is make sure you set aside at least 10 minutes each day to to be peaceful, to to go into the silence. Now, I've picked up meditation, so that's my form. Somebody else might do it with prayer. I mean, whatever, whatever you like, that's fine. Um, but it, it's 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 important to do that because so much noise and 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 lights and and urgency comes at us from every angle in life these days, and and if you don't go into the silence, there's there's really no chance you're ever going to hear life speaking to you. You're just going to hear Wolf Blitzer speaking to you, um, and so. Um, because the thing about it is this is, is, is when life speaks, it speaks very quietly. It will not compete for your attention. It will not shout. Uh, and so you need to find a place in silence. And um, I also believe that your dream world tries to communicate important instructions to you. And so I, I pay attention to my dreams and, 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 and I feel like I learn important things from them. But in any case, We live in a world now where it's not something that can be left to its own device, that at some point in the day you'll find yourself somewhere quiet and you can kind of clear your thoughts. It's got to be a deliberate thing now. Uh, And that's kind of too bad, but, you know, that's all right. Um, uh, You set aside that piece of time. For me, I, I get up an hour early each day so I can read. I'm always reading about something that I find interesting. When I'm done with that, then I'll meditate for 10 or 15 minutes, and it puts me in a nice, centered, peaceful place before I go into my day. Mm, that's that's cool. I, I feel that, and it really is just a feeling, but I feel that if people take the time to listen to that, that quiet voice that you're talking about, they mm-hmm. might have more life experiences that are, are more fulfilling, perhaps. You know, that you say, no, I'm on target here. This is, this is in sync with, with what my purpose is. 
Yeah, and you know the thing is, is is when you're on your path, it's not always fun. Okay, it just, <laughs> it, it, because you're comfortable and life is happy doesn't necessarily mean you're on your path, and because the opposite is happening doesn't mean you're off your path. It's it's um, it's so so think of it this way every a lot of people have a bucket list right uh, the, the list of everything you can do before you kick the bucket all right but but i believe if that's true then the balance of life requires that you have a chuck it list all the things you're never going to do before you <laughs> die <laughs> right um and some of those things you put there deliberately maybe you said i'm never going to bungee jump okay fair enough uh, and some things probably got there uh, just uh, of their own accord, right? I mean, it's too late for me to think about becoming a physician. Okay, fair enough. That's on my chuck it list. And I'm pretty sure climbing Denali and these other mountains were on the chuck it list. So, but the thing is this, is when, when, when you think about how you are going to spend your energy, you're going to the bucket list. It's you choosing your thoughts, your design. But every once in a while, something from the chuck it list will choose you. That is life speaking. And more than ever, it is so important to listen. And that's what I'm talking about. Nice. Well, how did you get from having climbed Denali, returning to real life and realizing, well, that was a great experience, but it didn't fix me. How did you get from that to deciding to do the seven summits? Yeah, I never decided to do the seven summits. Um, I came back from Denali and retired from climbing forever. For a while. <laughs> Forever uh, for a while. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, truly, I came back and I thought, okay, well, I'm glad I made it to the top. Uh, I, I feel like I really gained something in value and confidence and, 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 and a better understanding of my path forward with my personal life. But that was really hard. And I just don't see myself doing any more of that. And, um, and so I was, I was done where I thought I was done. And um, uh, about four months went by. And in that time, I'd gone on to online dating and I'd met a fabulous woman to whom I'm now engaged. And um, and uh, uh, we just had this incredibly uh, electric experience and hit it off so well right away. And um, uh, at about month two, she told me she loved me. And that was it was the thing I most wanted to hear. And it was the thing I was most afraid of hearing because I was still so engaged in protecting myself. You know, after a divorce, people, I think, are kind of like that. Oh, yeah. And so I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't return the sentiment to her. And uh, and she said that was OK. She just wanted me to know how she felt and and she could be patient. And I knew I loved her. I just couldn't I just couldn't tell her. And um that night, I had this dream where I'm following this male lion through the tall grass in Africa, and we're walking towards Kilimanjaro, and dream ends. Except that I had that same dream night after night after night after night after night. Oh, fascinating. Until uh, I was just obsessing with it, since I think you know my dream world tries to talk to me. I just kept thinking, what is my dream world trying to tell me? And finally, I just went to Lynn, this woman I was in a relationship with, and I said, look, I'm having this dream every night. I don't know what it means, but I think I'm supposed to go to Africa, and I think I'm supposed to climb Kilimanjaro. Now, tell me that doesn't sound zany, right? <laughs> um, and, and, how, and, and the typical response to that would be, you're crazy. Why? You know, that sort of stuff. But she doesn't bat an eye. She says, I think you should go then. So I did. And I went, and I climbed the mountain fabulous experience. Um, and then afterwards I'm on safari because you're not going to go to Africa and not go on safari. And, um, and we're way out on the Serengeti and there's this oasis type, uh, pond with lush trees around it. And there's this whole pride of lions just laying around with bulging bellies, right? They'd eaten for the day. And, uh, and we stop in our, our Land Rover and we're just watching them. And all these other animals are walking around. They, they're not at all afraid of the lions. I guess they know the lions have eaten. At any rate, um, so the driver, Hafif, he's telling me, you know, uh, this animal here uh, could do this to a person. That plant there has a juice that will blind a man and so on and so forth. And I, it, I was just struck. I said, this is the most beautiful and most dangerous place I've ever looked at. And, and the poetry of that rang true to me. I said, you know what? That's it. That's nature. Risk and return are always hand in hand, 
right? In the man-made world, not so. We're, man-made world is structured so we can take without giving. We can experience beauty without personal risk, right? We've got sidewalks and laws and rules and this and that. Not so in nature. Personal risk and return are always hand in hand. And then it hit me. That was the problem with, with my protecting myself, is that in trying to take no personal risk, I could never fully experience the love that was being offered to me. I was going to have to risk myself to make this thing work. And that was when I realized what the dream was about. And I just looked at that big male lion lying in the grass and I said, thank you. Mm. <laughs> That's beautiful, man. And I was going to say at the beginning, maybe Kilimanjaro, the mountain, wasn't your Kilimanjaro. Maybe maybe your Kilimanjaro was was learning to love again. Yeah, I, there's, there's a great deal of truth in that. Um, it, it's, uh, there, there's, there's this cool movie I saw years ago called Searching for the Wrong-Eyed Jesus. Um, and uh, there's this great line in it where they say, sometimes you got to look away from a problem to see the answer. And, and I think that's what a lot of my mountain experiences were, is they were, they were getting me to look away from the basic fact that I feared intimacy in this case, so that my heart and my mind would open up long enough for the truth of the situation to creep in. Nice. As I'm sure you know from listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime. And Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear, so you can get your skis and your boots there, as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts, so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado. Or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Camp Crate is a gear rental trip planning service. So if you contact us, we will plan a backpacking trip for you if you don't have one planned. And then we rent you all the gear and send it to your house to your hotel, wherever it needs to go, anywhere in the U.S., we'll ship you gear. And then once you're done, you put it back in the box and return it back to us. Most of our customers are first-timers, so we want to give you the confidence to go out into the wilderness with the right gear and with the know-how. And also with 24-7 support, we're able to really make you feel comfortable while at the same time challenging yourself physically and emotionally, mentally. So we had some customers in the backcountry call us because they were concerned they had altitude sickness. And we were able to talk them down, get them to a safe place, create an emergency plan. And we were willing to do anything we needed to get them out of there. But they ended up taking our advice and still having a really good trip. I know that a lot of people have told us it's been life-changing for them. The best trip they've ever done. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook. We're always updating that. Our website is campcrate.net. Well, that's two great mountain stories in a row, but there are five more. <laughs> what was next? Uh, next, I went to uh, Elbrus, which is the high summit for Europe. It's in Russia. And, uh, and I climbed that with uh, the outstanding um, organization adventure consultants, who, by the way, had led my climb on Kilimanjaro as well. Um, and... Uh, and had a marvelous experience there. Um, the before I left, um, I was uh, I was kind of thing I was struggling with was, you know, now I was doing my mountain climbing and and to celebrate my 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 each of my continental summits, I got the the profile of of Kilimanjaro and Denali tattooed to my right shin, uh, 
um, it was just sort of my way of celebrating. But, you know, and the funny thing is, is you, you would think the people around you, you know, want to cheer on and, 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 and celebrate your accomplishments. But that's not necessarily how the deal goes down. And I was getting pushback largely from, you know, dudes, my my, my friends were, <laughs> you know, they, they were like, oh, that's pretty subtle or yeah, but have you climbed Everest? And 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 and, and, and I was getting lots of comments like that. And um, and I came to realize that the real problem was that that. I think I was threatening their comfort, right? Oh yeah. You get sure. to be in your you get to be in your mid forties and you know, you've probably lived a good and useful life. You're raising kids. It should be okay to 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 sit back and relax now. But for a man to do that, he's got to accept the fact that his days of daring do are behind him. And I was disrupting that belief and they didn't appreciate it. And so um I kind of, uh, kind of went into hiding with, <laughs> with what I was doing in climbing. I didn't talk about it. I, I kept it from people because I didn't understand the pushback I was getting. And on, on the Elbrus climb, uh, I met this um, Hindu woman, a young Hindu woman who uh, was cutting against the grain of her family's very traditional belief systems about what a woman should and should not be doing, and she should not be climbing mountains. And she was doing it anyway. And, uh, and I was so inspired by the strength and the confidence she showed. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, my eldest son came out as openly gay in high school. And um, just the courage he showed in doing that. And so I took those two examples uh, as as important um, lessons about living a genuine life and, and kind of found the courage to go back to living a genuine life myself. Yeah, Aconcagua was after Elbrus. And uh, so High Summit for South America down in Argentina, 22,800 feet. Big, moody, windy son of a gun. And um, um, I teamed up with my brother-in-law again on that one. Uh, he, as you'll recall, climbed with me on Denali. And him and I decided we wanted to do it the old school way. We wanted it, It's just two guys on their own. And we wanted to go up one side of the mountain and down the other. So that meant everything had to go over the top, and uh, which made for some massive loads. And, uh, and we went and... Um, and uh, we did it. Now, Ty, he he got you on Denali, and it sounds like you guys enjoyed Aconcagua together. Was he trying mm-hmm. to do the Seven Summits, or what were his goals? No, he's really not into the Seven Summits at all. Um, he just loved climbing mountains, and he's great at it. Um, he's uh, He uses what's called a power strategy of climbing, which tends to be slow, steady, uh, plodding along. Uh, he's in my opinion, one of the premier power climbers in the world today. Um, he's just a tractor. You cannot stop the guy. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but he loved he loved climbing, and uh, so you know he he talked me into Denali certainly, and then um, we kind of jointly talked each other into Aconcagua, and then uh, when it came time for Everest, I talked him into that. Nice. <laughs> so he he did three of the mountains with you then. Yeah, he did, mm-hmm. which was just just so nice because he's he's just such an outstanding human being and he's great company and and to have those shared experiences is just incredibly valuable. Well, I, we're, we could talk for another two hours about all of this, but let's let's skip to Oceana because I want you to talk about. Um, help me out here, Karsten's. Did I say that right? Karsten's pyramid. Yeah, Karsten's pyramid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. You know, the thing is this is since we're talking about climbing continental high points, it bears noting that Australia isn't anywhere in the conversation, and that, of course, is a continent. So it would be fair to ask, well, why are you climbing Carson's Pyramid in New Guinea instead of Kosciuszko in Australia? And the answer is is that Kosciuszko, the high point for Australia, is only 7,000 feet. You can actually drive to the top of it. And so it sort of lacks the personal challenge that's typified by all the other continental summits. And that being the case, uh, Reinhold Mesner took it upon himself to uh, uh, to to 
come up with a better solution. And he said, look, let's just, let's conclude all of Oceania, which includes uh, New Zealand and in uh, Australia, but also um, Papua New Guinea with uh, Carson's Pyramid at 16,000 plus feet, a much more formidable objective. And so, you know, um, some climbers will make their their seventh summit Kosciuszko and, and, you know, with, with very little argument, they've climbed the seven summits and, and good for them. It was still a monumental feat. But for others, they feel like, no, I, I want to do all this the hard way. <laughs> so um, I'm going to go with a much more challenging Carson's Pyramid to cap out my seven. And that was the choice I made. Mm. Okay. And what is that mountain like? 16,000 feet. Uh, what, mm-hmm. what are the parameters? Talking about weather and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, it's more like a long jungle trek with a 3,000-foot rock face at the end. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the rock face, that part of the climb was a kick in the pants. I mean, that's what we're good at. We loved it every minute of it. Um, but getting to the rock face was a hard part because it's six days of jungle trekking. And for anyone who's never done jungle trekking, it's hard. We averaged less than a mile an hour. Um, everything is muddy and slippery and you're falling down constantly sometimes the mud is hip deep you're crossing rivers full of leeches uh malaria am i selling this well um you're uh, <laughs> uh you know the the topography looks like plates in a drying rack where we would ascend 4000 feet and then descend 3000 cross a river then ascend 4000 feet and descend 3000 oh. for frustratingly small amount of net gain um but the really fascinating part of it is just that um you know you're crossing three different tribal lands for indigenous peoples um and um they have a storied history of not getting along and so you have to sort of cobble this tentative peace together among them because um you're required to gain for gaining access to a tribal land you have to hire 15 porters whether you need them or not needing them is not important yet you but you got to hire them and um so three tribal lands that's 45 porters we start off as a team of 12 but we got winnowed down to six in about three days <laughs> so so now you got 45 porters for six climbers, but it doesn't end there because none of these porters are going to leave their families behind. These villages raid each other regularly. So he, uh, uh, one porter is going to bring his wives, plural, with him, all of his kids. And if his parents are mobile, he's going to bring those too. So <laughs> wow. we ended up we ended up looking like an invasion force. We were like 300 some odd people for the sake of six climbers. And um, we didn't have to feed all those people. They just foraged uh, on, on the trail each day. They would they would stop and dig up a big wild yam or some wild sugar cane, or they'd they'd take a bunch of bark off a cinnamon tree. Or they'd kill a snake, whatever. Uh, but they uh, they fed themselves quite fine. And uh, we had all our freeze dried provisions, and sometimes we ate some of their stuff, which was cool. Uh, but but it was just such a rich and colorful experience. Experience, um, uh, but really, really hard jungle trekking. I mean, it was it was in the '90s in the jungle every day, and the humidity was heavy enough you could see your breath even at 95 degrees. It was just ungodly. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> that it's the heat and the humidity. I know there were a lot of other challenges, but I in in my tiny little myopic world, the heat and the humidity would just kill me. It sucks the life out of you. It really does. And I would, uh, I had a little eight ounce Nalgene water bottle that would fit in my pocket. And so whenever we stopped, I would drink and then I would refill that thing so that I could drink while we're on the move because we didn't do much stopping. And then I kept a bandana in the other pocket so I could wipe the sweat off my face. And I had a baseball cap. And every time we went through a river, I'd dip it and throw that over my head and so you get these little moments of relief along the way. Um, but um, among the six that, that, that spirited on, one member was a 65-year-old woman named Carol Master from Salt Lake City, Utah. She's a retired PhD. And this was her seventh of the seven summits. And, um, and uh, she, like all of us, was falling down a lot each day. But when you're 65, it's different than when you're 35. Mm. And um, I watched her just beat the tar out of herself, never complain. She might lay there a bit, but then she'd get up and keep moving. 
And she got sick, and she couldn't keep down food or water, couldn't carry her pack. And if we stopped to rest for 10 minutes, she just lay down in the mud and sleep. And uh, and But she always got back up and kept going. And, you know, her quest became our quest. We all had so much respect for this woman. And um, any one of us would have given up our own summit attempt to make sure she got there. Uh, but um, uh, in the end uh, – she got up the, the rock face, uh, got to the Tyrolean Traverse, which this climb is well known for. It's an 80-foot gap uh, in the ridge at 16,000 feet where you've got to hang from a wire and pull yourself hand <laughs> over hand wow. across. Yeah. And I don't know where she found the strength to do it. I honestly do not. But um, when we got a few steps on the summit, we all stopped so she could summit first and and I turned on my helmet cam and filmed that moment, and everyone was in tears. It was an incredible, powerful moment, and uh, she made it, and she's now the oldest woman in history to do the seven. Fantastic, fantastic. So of the seven summits, which one do you think was the most impacting to you personally? Wow. Well, that's a great question. I, th- I guess I'd have to say Denali because it changed the whole terms of engagement between me and and, and life and how I approached it. Um, And uh, that made all the other lessons possible. So I I would have to say Denali. Okay. And the last summit now, are we talking about Everest? Everest, yeah. Yeah, in 2013. So to get to Everest was the decision that I would go. And, and that seemed like a long ways off because I, I had said that was the one I would never do. And I even reread into thin air just to scare the hell out of myself and make sure <laughs> I wouldn't change my mind later. So, um, uh, so I was not going to Everest, and, and this was understood. Um, and uh, we're still on Karstens. Uh, we summit, and now we're rappelling down that rock face. Now it's 19 separate rappels to get down a 3,000 foot rock face. So it's a lot of rappelling. And even though you're in a fairly jungle-like place, when you're at 16,000 feet, it gets cold. And um, and so I'm halfway down the rock face and I stop to kind of warm my hands up because they're getting numb and I'm feeling chilled and it's starting to rain on us. And, uh, and I'm kind of rubbing my hands together and I close my eyes for a minute and the image of Everest pops into my mind. And I hear a voice say, it will be all right. That's it. And I knew in that moment I was going to Everest, even though five minutes before that I was never going to Everest. But it was the clearest instance of of life speaking to me that that I've ever had. And uh, and I felt this warmth pass through me, and um, I knew I was going to Everest at that point. Um, now, depending on your belief system, some people might say that voice and that message was coming from one place versus another. I'll let readers decide for themselves. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, um, and, and believe me, I'm, I'm not, uh, happy to admit that I hear voices because people who hear voices end up featured in unflattering headlines. Right. So, um, but, uh, I would be remiss to not tell it the way it happened. And that's, that's how it happened. And so, um, I met up with Lynn in Bali after that climb, and and she was uh, saying, "Gee, you know, um, um, you must have some thought about Everest." And I said, "Yeah, I want to climb it this March," and I was surprised how confident I sounded. <laughs> um, and she said, "Well, you better get training then," and uh, that set everything in motion towards Everest. Nice, and we did skip a mountain there. We did. We skipped uh, Vincent Massif in Antarctica, which. Um, it's a really cold place, by the way. Right. Um, I flash froze. Yeah, I flash froze all my fingertips there. And uh, what happens when you do that is uh, when when you come back down to normal altitude and normal life, they all turn white and the skin dies and they peel off, and you're left with that translucent uh, skin of last resort that's super creepy looking. But uh, uh, you, you can recover from that. But but Antarctica was. Uh, I, I mean, the vastness of it is breathtaking, and the, and, the, and, the, and the beauty is just never waning. Um, it, was, it was a marvelous experience. Um, 
And so, yeah, that's that's covered uh, covered in in detail in the book as well. All right, we have to get to the seventh summit on Everest and what it felt like when you finally stepped foot on it. So I, I can't imagine what that was like, but describe that for us if if you can. Here's how I describe it. It's kind of like being paid in a currency that's unfamiliar to you. you. You'll only know the value of it when it's fully spent. And in the moment when I, when I stepped up onto the summit of Everest, my first thought was, I'm all out of mountain. And I mean, I meant that literally and figuratively at the same time. I was just completely out of mountain. And, um, and I could sense the impact of what that meant, but I couldn't really understand the measure of it. I was just too exhausted. Um, and I felt that perspective would come, would come with time and it has, and, and that's also covered in the book, but, but truly, you know, I just, I, I stood there and my Sherpa and I, we were alone on the summit. We were the first climbers to reach the summit that night. We were alone up there for 45 minutes and saw the sun come up and, and I just stood on the summit and, um, one thing seemed really clear to me, and I just heard myself say, thank you. Let's fast forward to today then. You summited in 2013, right? Yep. And so here we are five years later. Uh, what are you up to? Do you, did you continue to climb, or have you moved on to other mountains? Uh, no, I continue to climb. I'm not doing altitude climbing anymore. That was a pledge I made to my family. You know, They were so supportive of me, but I kind of put them through hell during this period of time. Um, so I still climb, but I don't do the high altitude stuff. I'm, I'm high pointing right now. So, you know, just climbing the highest thing in each state and I've knocked off Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Arizona, New Mexico. Um, I'm saving Florida for last, uh, in case I'm in a walker or something, <laughs> but you know, that's a thing in the climbing community, high pointing. And, uh, it's a great excuse to see places you might not have seen. It's also, uh, that's what I'm doing in terms of climbing and otherwise I'm staying really busy um, um, with uh, the book promotion. The book came out May 1. Uh, it is an Amazon number one bestseller. And so it's off to a great start, getting really great reviews. Um, I partnered with REI doing talks all over the place. If folks want to take one of those in, they can go to my website. I, I post them whenever they're books so you can see when I'm coming to your area. Wonderful. And the name of the book is The Altitude Journal. And David Morrow is M-A-U-R-O. And David, your website has a J thrown in there. So it's davidjmorrow.com. davidjmorrow.com. And you know, if nothing else, it's kind of a fun site to check out because I have links to all my blogs, all my Picasso web albums. You can see hundreds of photos from these climbs, as well as some videos, including the video of that 65-year-old woman uh, completing the seven summits uh, from my helmet camera, which is a marvelous piece of footage to watch. So it's all on there. And um, if uh, if you're not sure if you want to buy the book, read a few of the blogs. They're free. Uh, if you like what you see there, you'd probably like the book. So, you know, you can check it out before uh, committing your hard-earned dollars. All right on. And it sounds delightful. I'm going to pick up a copy, David. I, wanted, I want to read it. And the reason why... It's not because you're talking about climbing seven summits, though I love that. It's because the the life lessons learned, you know, that you've shared with us, just a taste of that, that to me is the is a lot of the value of the book. So yeah, awesome. Once again, that's davidjmorrow.com and the book is the Altitude Journal. Hey David, we are about sixty miles as the Golden Eagle flies from Mount Elbert. Ah. So when you decide to get the high point in Colorado, you have to swing by and, and uh, come see us. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. So that's, that's obviously on the high pointing list. And, uh, and maybe, you can, uh, maybe you can join me on that. That'd be great, Curse. I'd uh, love to have uh, some, some local expertise to keep me out of trouble. <laughs> well, it's not that <laughs> tough of a mountain. But I mean, like any 14er, you know, it, it, it has its moments. But we climbed that one in the wintertime when it was below zero, and we liked to pretend that it was a big mountain. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. There you go. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, it's 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 just all, all about getting out there, being safe, having fun, having experiences, sharing those experiences. They don't all have to be marquee names or super high dangerous mountains. That's not that's not required. No, absolutely not. Well, David, I wish we had time to keep on going because I have so enjoyed our discussion today. But thank you so much for sharing your time and your experiences with us. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, it's it's been a real pleasure and uh, thank you for having me on Curtis Uh, and uh, to your listeners I say thank you so much for for listening I hope it was a good experience for you and uh, may our paths cross again well thank you and until the next show you know when I say this everyone that's listened to the show for a while they, they know it's not just about fun when I say get out there and have some fun it's always about growing about life experiences about helping others about discovering meaning and things like that but that's what adventure sports are for in my book so until the next show make sure that you do get out there and have some fun all right thank you